Friends, this morning, uh, Mike Yorty, one of our elders and our parish point person here in Fishers, is going to share with us this morning. Um, so I'm going to turn things over to him and remind, uh, well, you all are muted. I'm going to mute myself uh, so that Mike can be well heard. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with all of you this morning um, as we gather on another beautiful, sunny uh, morning, even though it's a little bit chilly. It always amazes me how we make judgments on situations and people based on what we see in that particular moment or what we perceive in that moment. We might judge others and make assumptions about God without necessarily understand, un understanding the context. If we fail to listen or to see life with wisdom, then we fail to understand people's stories and all that goes into creating their context and worldview. I'm tasked in my day job with creating a spiritual assessment for oncology patients. This seems quite ambiguous to me because how can one assess someone else in 45 minutes to an hour? It's subjective based on my life experiences, my theological training, my chaplain training, the questions I ask, and the nonverbal and verbal answers I receive. And though it's relatively easy for me <clears throat> to recognize emotional or spiritual distress or existential crisis, it is much more challenging at times to ascertain issues of forgiveness and reconciliation, guilt and shame, injustices, and relationships that matter. Sometimes I get the assessment right, I think, and sometimes I clearly get it wrong. We can do the same with the biblical text, making judgments and assessments because we don't understand the full context. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar, and though my training has given me a broad understanding of hermeneutics, I would be fooling myself and you if I said, this is what the text means. The best I can give is what I think it may mean and therefore its implications for us, all the while recognizing this is a small part of a larger theological stream. Our text today involves a broad historical context that shapes its message and therefore our understanding. Israel was given the promised land under God and it took them a long time to achieve it. And finally, around 1000 BC, King David united the 12 tribes in the promised land. It became its highest uh, apex during King Solomon's reign and uh, where, where they had the most land and most wealth possible. But King Solomon's children who inherited the kingdom uh, fought for the right for the kingdom and the kingdom actually split into two uh, sections, um, the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. Now Israel and Judah occupied land that included a prized trade route through the Fertile Crescent that stretched from Egypt to what is current day Iraq. This land was continually fought for throughout history, just as Israel defeated its enemies to claim the land. 
Latering kingdoms waged war on Israel for the right to those lands. The Northern Kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And what the Assyrians did is they took some people from Israel back to Assyria and transported other people from various places and ethnicities into Israel. They did this because if you eliminate ethnicities and ideologies through intermarrying, then you eliminate the uprisings that are caused by unity in identity. It's pretty ingenious and also cruel. This is actually where the term the Samaritan comes from that we see in the New Testament. A Samaritan is the lineage that comes from the intermarrying of a Jew and a foreigner during the Assyrian reign. The southern kingdom of Judah held on to its power and territory longer, though paid tributes to Assyria and therefore was, con therefore was considered a client state. But Assyria was overthrown by the Babylonian Empire in the late 6th century. Egypt, who was bordering all of this, was afraid of a sudden Babylonian Empire and therefore seized some of the Assyrian land. Babylonia counterattacked in 609 BC, and in that battle, Josiah, the king of Judah, was killed. Jehoiakim became the king of Judah and started paying tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar in 605 after Babylonia defeated Pharaoh's army at Carchemish. Babylonia took some of Judah's young nobility back to Babylon with them at that time. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were likely in this group of people to go. Now, during this time, the politics in the court in Jerusalem for the kingdom of Judah was interesting. Half of that court were allies to Egypt, and the other half of that court were allies to Babylon. So when Nebuchadnezzar was defeated in a battle by Egypt in 601, and Jehoiakim listened to his advisors that were allies of Egypt and decided to stop paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, which as you can imagine, made King Nebuchadnezzar mad. He laid siege around Jerusalem in late 598 and King Jehoiakim was killed in that battle. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, took over and Babylon broke through and pillaged the temple in 597 and took Jehoiakim and his court back to Babylon. Now the prophet Jeremiah uh, was also a contemporary of this time and was likely considered a pro-Babylonian uh, in his strategic thinking and constantly issued warnings for the then functioning king Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah to enter into an alliance with Babylon, but he refused which again, of course, made Nebuchadnezzar mad. So he returned and the city was, and Jerusalem was finally completely destroyed in 587. So our text for today comes from Daniel three, and this is actually where Daniel three picks up. So if you wanna to turn to Daniel three uh, or have it on your tablet, I'm not gonna read the entire chapter. Um, I'm actually, uh, going to start in verse 11. But uh, so 
So this story takes place about 585, so a couple years after Jerusalem was destroyed, and about 15 years after uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were already in Babylon. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had uh, made this huge golden statue, and people were supposed to um, pay tribute to it. So starting in verse 11. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there were some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They have defied your majesty by refusing to serve your gods, to worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance. If you bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, all will be well. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. What god will be able to rescue you from my power then? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, your majesty can be sure that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace fully clothed. And because the king in his, in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames leaped out and killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell down into the flaming, into the roaring flames. But suddenly, as he was watching, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, they said. We did indeed, your majesty. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire. They aren't even hurt by the flames, and the fourth looks like a divine being. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the princes, prefects, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair in their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, 
speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be crushed into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Now, I think there are two basic implications for us, one on a macro scale level and one on a micro scale level, and both of them are huge. The first is this. The kingdoms of this world are not beyond God's control. And in fact, one day God will replace them with God's kingdom. This is eschatology, the focus on the final days. Eschatology is really the ultimate Christian hope where all of the injustices in all of history are finally made right. God is always on the side of the marginalized, the small, the persecuted, the oppressed, and the exploited, always. The Old Testament prophets spoke harshly about God's judgment on Israel because the privileged and powerful oppressed the poor and the outcasts. The prophets, and now even our own Christian understanding, interpreted the events of the world as God using other nations to punish and judge Israel for their unfaithfulness because they did not look out for the poor and the widow and in fact took advantage of them and exploited them. When Jesus came, he shared God's eschatological vision, essentially saying, this is the year of Jubilee where all debts are paid and indentured servants become free and the land reverts back to its rightful heirs. This is ultimate freedom. This is what Jesus meant in Luke 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when he unscrolled the scroll of Isaiah and read from chapter 61, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There are a lot of injustices today that lead to pain and trauma and suffering. Racism, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia, inequality, exploitation, discrimination, and as we witness every day in this city, violence. And in the past couple of days, a mass shooting. The rich exploit the poor through systems designed to enhance their well-being and lower everyone else's. I suggest that we also live in an empire that does such things. You only need to read the news headlines to catch glimpses of how the powerful and privileged are pursuing power at the expense of everyone else. The Old Testament prophets angrily proclaimed against such things. And in fact, God's judgment came to pass and is why Daniel and company were now exiled in Babylon. 
they could not necessarily have foreseen the events that were to unfold. It just happened to be their time and place in history that they are characters in this amazing story. John of Patmos in Revelation described the Roman Empire and future such empires as evil and evil incarnate. The number 666 actually described the Roman emperor at that time and is how the contemporary readers would have understood it. We also interpret revelations as prophecy relevant throughout all human history, past, present, and future, and its prophetic truth describes evil and evil regime and the cosmic battle to make things right in the end. Eschatology is good news for all of Jesus's followers throughout all of human history, including us in the United States right now, because God sees the destruction, the pain, the injustices, and will right all the wrongs we experience or witness in the end. We may find ourselves as characters in a cosmic battle and experience the shrapnel that comes from that, the pain and suffering from such a battle, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And quite frankly and bluntly, I would say that if you're involved in our church at all, then you care deeply about injustice and are, are already engaged in writing the suffering plight of others. Eschatology is good news for us. It's the massive macro scale that we likely won't see played out in our lifetime. It took hundreds of years for Israel to face their judgments from God and for the faithful and the faithful remnant spent centuries waiting and hoping for God to act to right the wrongs. And God did act through Jesus and sending the Holy Spirit. And though it wasn't immediate for them, we do see how God's covenant promises will be kept for the faithful, even in the face of all opposition. The second implication for us is what I will term microscale hope. You might have been thinking eschatology is good and all, but what if I'm suffering now? And what if my neighbor is suffering now? Microscale hope is hope we can experience in our individual lives today. Melissa shared on February 7th, I believe, that hope is a discipline and not a sentiment. And this is true. For most of my life, I've always struggled with a passage in Romans that says, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. You see, I thought hope was a feeling and I would get so frustrated when I felt hopeless in the midst of my own suffering and trauma. I would angrily ask God, where is this hope? I don't feel it. I'm beginning to wonder if it's real. What is the purpose of suffering and enduring in the production of character? Because hope seems like a lie. But it turns out that hope is not a feeling at all. It is cognitive and it lies within our intellectual center, not our emotive one. 
In my research for best practices in, in oncology care, I ran, a, ran across a medically peer-reviewed article on the science of hope. Hope has two characteristics that can actually be measured, pathway thinking and agency thinking. Pathway thinking involves strategy and planning goals, while agency thinking involves motivation and the thoughts people have regarding their ability to begin and continue movement on the selected pathways towards those goals. And lo and behold, hope as a goal-oriented cognitive construct has effective and behavioral implications. This is powerful. I have two children from a previous marriage. Jenna is now 19 and Alexa is 17. Two years ago, they chose to stop communicating with me and my entire family. I have not seen them in two years. I miss them. And I think about them every day. I usually shed tears on a weekly basis. There are times Abby and I are watching a movie and because the storyline involves suffering and overcoming and redemption, we just sob and hold each other tightly. In every case, I am thinking about my children and in every case, Abby is entering my pain and suffering with me, journeying with me, being my companion in the midst of my reality. My therapist encourages me to sit in the pain of the emotion. And ironically, I'm not very good at that. I am very skilled in helping others sit in their pain but very bad at it myself. And so one of my goals has been to sit in my pain, to recognize it, to feel it, to acknowledge it. And if it happens at work, I send a text to Abby saying, I'm thinking about Jenna and Alexa and I'm overcome with sadness. And the spirit moves in that moment and I experience hope because you see the most important part for anyone facing the fire is to have a companion in the journey it is my ability to enter into the pain of a cancer patient and journey with them that matters not the spiritual assessment it's Abby's ability to enter into my pain that matters. And the spirit moves and we have the courage to face tomorrow. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you recognizing that there is pain and brokenness 
and trauma in this lifetime that we experience on a personal level, that we experience on a system level, that we experience on a societal level. Help us cling on to your garment. Recognizing that you do make things right in the end. Recognizing that even in the midst of suffering, you journey with us. Encourage us. Hold us. And welcome us into your arms. Arms of complete love. Be with each person on our Zoom call today. I don't know what is all going on in each individual life. But I do know even even for somebody who has experienced mostly joy in this lifetime, there is always moments of pain. Walk with them in such moments. We pray all of this in your mighty and powerful name. Amen.